why you love mobile home parks so much um, and why it might be a good choice for someone that's that's going along this path is one of their first deals. This is the only asset class, even behind what they would consider in today's market, true affordable housing or Section 8, right? This is the only asset class spread across all commercial real estate. It's the only one that's been resilient and has stood above the rest of the major food groups within commercial real estate. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited investors build their legacy by growing their monthly passive income through private investments. I'm your host, Pascal Wagner. And today we have an old friend and colleague, Brad Reimer, joining us from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Brad. Hi. Thank you very much, Pascal. And good to see you again. Yeah, man. So I'm going to give a little bit of background on, on Brad. He is the uh, co-manager, CIO, and CFO at Haven Capital Ventures, a manufactured housing community investment firm headquartered in Bonita Springs, Florida. Their strategy is to purchase uh, manufactured housing communities all across the United States um, that are cash flow producing from mom and pop operators, uh, focusing on ways that they can improve uh, cash flow and value. Since founding in November 2022, Haven Capital Ventures has raised more than 2.2 uh, 2.2 million with their second fund currently fundraising. And today, if you want to participate in any of their offerings, it requires a minimum check of 50k as a new investor. So uh, I'm going to take a pause there uh, from reading your bio and want to kind of just jump in to having you explain kind of more in detail, maybe with acquisition criteria. Um, how, what does your fund do? Sure. Um, effectively, in, in the past, in the past, over the past 16 funds that I've worked with previously, uh, starting as far back as call it, uh, 2012, 2015, uh, when I started really getting into this sector specifically, um, we focused, and have always focused on this under misunderstood asset class, which is mobile home communities. Um, it's better known, uh, I guess, traditionally known as trailer parks. It's evolved from that to mobile home parks. But um, in today's day and age, when you're actually just like an apartment community, an apartment complex, right? Uh, same thing is it, a mobile home community is a series of lots that pay rent, kind of like a two-dimensional apartment building, right? And I've pushed that from the beginning. Once I took over as CFO of uh, the fifth largest uh, series of funds in the country, fifth largest portfolio, uh, containing about 280 properties at its max, over 320 properties over my term and 30,000 lots, um, I came to understand the transition between a mobile home park and a trailer park to what is considered a community. And Sam Zell, who, you know, rest in peace, uh, created this new transition sort of Warren Buffett. Um, you know, a community itself is a series of lots with a, with a uh, same mindset that we're paying rent and want nice, we want nice features, just like in the apartment. We want nice features as a residential neighborhood, and we want kind of the same mindset uh, to, to rent within. Um, but we turn, and what we, what we typically try to do is, is purchase communities that are undervalued, mismanaged, or with mom and pops that uh, are ready to retire 
They don't want to pass these down to their their children or the children who have inherited it don't want to take care of it. Uh, they don't understand it, and they've they've appreciated and understood the cash flow over time, you know, either being uh, growing up um, growing up into it, or the the the, the mom and pops have have taken on and and, and understood the the cash flow, the gains from it. Um, what we do is we go in and and kind of boost and elevate and evolve these communities to modernization. Um, you know, say, for example, you take over a community and right away you see that the expense ratios are very high for that size of community per lot. Uh, you can spot right away things like, I know that there's a leak in the utilities or I know that um, there's, there's certain elements that can be passed through or the municipality or even the county needs to be... Um, you need to revise or uh, amend all the taxation. So it's it's over all over all the communities I've seen over time. You can you can spot this right away. You know what's? Uh, I think it's just funny. Uh, also, from knowing you, uh, is the CFO answer side of you comes <laughs> out. Uh, uh, you know, I haven't I haven't heard someone talk about mobile home communities in that way, and and yeah. uh, I, I think it, I you know it, it it's interesting the different lens that everyone has on it. So so. When I think about mobile home park communities, you're really thinking about it as a community, just like on a, you know, a larger apartment complex. You're not thinking, hey, you know, here's 10, 10 lots or, or 30 lots. And, you know, that sounds good. You're looking for things that that actually have community features or of or are of a certain size. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, that's exactly it. So, I mean, obviously, like the smaller communities, like I looked at one recently in Pine, Colorado. Um, Colorado has a great mobile home community atmosphere. Um, you, you obviously don't have to worry about floods, right, unless you're on, on a riverbed. But no matter what, in a mobile home community in Colorado, you typically in the mountains or higher desert. Um, that that has, like, it, it's almost like a camping atmosphere where people live year-round. It's not an RV park. It's just their residence. Look at Malibu, California. That's a, that's a lifestyle where it, like mobile home communities sitting there in Malibu outside of Pepperdine University, they're charging $1,000 per lot. And people are like, yeah, I'm going to pay that. I mean, that's more than what, in, in some instances, what people would pay for, for apartments. Um, but yeah, I mean, for, from my standpoint, I look at these communities and I see where uh, we can provide residents with, and I, and I have this coin statement that I have built over time, which is, it's a two-dimensional apartment building, which I mentioned earlier, but it's the, it's the only affordable housing option for anybody in today's market, and it's the most effective one. It's the cheapest one, but it's the only option that affordable housing where you can have a lawn, too. I mean, you have a lawn in the sense of ownership. Try to find that in a Section 8 house with about two times the amount of lot rent. Or go to an apartment building and where you're, you're being charged 800 to 900, but you have a sense of lawn. You, like everybody around you, your neighbors control your hallways. I mean, I'm sorry, but it, it still is the most effective way for affordable housing. Okay, that's, uh, that's also a really fascinating take. So when I think about mobile home parks, I, I think of the benefits of, okay, it's, it's one of the whole housing crisis, like you said, like it's a way for someone to, Maybe find a roof over their head with without paying over a thousand dollars in rent. Right. But to when I think about it, is to do these people really think about having 
a home or I, I would have just imagined that, you know, it's like, oh, this is just the place I'm living now. But I mean, now that you're talking about it, everyone, would, I imagine, would want a sense of, of belonging or home ownership. Yeah, sense of belonging in neighborhood. I mean, typically what you want to do because of leverage and financing, which is very restrictive and, and HUD. Fannie and Freddie and government agencies are pushing their way more and more towards this. I mean, started the, the inertia was kicked off by Warren Buffett and Sam Zell. But I mean, people like actually that we typically want to own a community where the tenant owns the home. And, and one of the things I point out in the recent, recent podcast and article is that again, the tenant pays for the, the lot, right? There's a separate lot rental and then the home that sits on top of it is a separate rental. That's the home charge. Typically, what investors in mobile home communities want is they want the tenant who owns the home, right? They full outright own the title and home, and all they do is pay us lot rent. And we supply and maintain and keep efficient the utilities that are supplied to the home. That's it. Now, in many instances, and how and how we're trying to get, to boost the mobile home community sector is we're bringing in homes and the tenants only, they rent the lot and then we provide the home. And so there's a home rent as well. Two different operations, home operations, community operations, right? And I did this in the recent pitch deck and I don't know if you've had the opportunity and we'll talk at the end about uh, sending everybody to Haven Capital Ventures website. But you know, I one of, the, one of the things I've strived to always do is it's very easy to describe mobile home communities and easy cash flow and the bigger cash flow, right? And it's it's resilient, it's reliable, it's consistent. But why? Separating the business. What's that? Why? Let's go into why. why. Well, so the why. Okay, so think about your lot rent. Okay, we talked about tenants paying lot rent, and that's that's their only obligation. We'll, we'll forget about the homes for now. They have a lot rent, and they have to pay for utilities. Okay, it's up to the landlord that has all these different lots across the community to upkeep and collect rent on just those lots. The average lot rent right now across the country, it was when I first got aboard in, in terms of mobile home communities, it was $325 a month. Now it's around 380 to almost 425, depending on what region you are in the country. So that's just paying for that lot. That rent goes to the community owner, which is the series of lots, and we provide the utilities unless, unless the municipality around it is providing those utilities and bill back correctly to that tenant. But the, the, the expense to income ratio is 40%. Max, max. Well, if you're keeping a really efficient community, it's down to 30%. So 70% of the expected gross income goes to the owner of the property. We're okay, not even so, talking so, about so let, let, let's, let's simplify. Let's simplify. You know, what, sure. I, what I try to do is, so like... Um, I love that. I, yeah. it's, it's hard to do sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that's that's pretty much my job on this entire podcast. Um, it's uh, so so effectively, uh, what you're saying is that by by focusing on just the lot and not mm -hmm. having to maintain the home, um, you don't have to deal with all of these extra expenses or or issues with that come along with home ownership. You're just making sure that you know they get their utilities and that yeah. um, and that. They get to save, put their house on that very specific point. They're, pay, they're paying. They're paying a lot rent. You want the tenant to own the home, and that's strictly it. So I came up with the phrase a long time ago uh, about the two-dimensional apartment building 
because it's, the lot is the apartment. And as a tenant in an apartment building, all you're doing is you're paying your apartment rent and the utilities that you use. Same with the lot. Same with the utilities that you consume. What are the other options that someone that is looking for a home to sleep in in this demographic? What what are the other options that they have? Camping, homelessness. Uh, there's, so there's there's RV. So there's permanent and and seasonal RV, right? Where I've I've, I've thought about and devised and talked to apps like RV Easy, Outdoorsy. RV share all these different groups about concepts on how to modernize the RV side of it. Um, you have the small home side, which is not as easy as it would seem to put a small home on a mobile home lot uh, because states have regulation. Um, the actual mobile homes themselves are licensed as automobiles, not not residences, right? So that's a whole different wormhole that we could jump into, right? But I mean, basically, at the end of the day, they could camp on there, but that's a campground. Um, you know, tenants typically within mobile homes, mobile home communities want a neighborhood, a community atmosphere. They want to know who's next door to them. They want to mow their own lawn, right? And again, you don't mow your own lawn in an apartment building, but you can in a mobile home community. And you could park your car right next to your home. You could have a shed and charge it, have an additional charge for the shed provided by the community or bring your own in as long as it's approved by the state and the city. So, I mean, truly it is, it's a, it's a communal, it's, it's almost like a, um, uh, a master community mindset that's all rental. I want to put this, uh, this question of, of what makes uh, this asset class safe to invest in or safer. Uh, but I, what I'd love to kind of dive, dive back and just make sure we don't miss it is, so you, you started this Haven Capital Ventures firm recently. You've been in the industry for a while. Why why make this transition, start a new firm? And and what did you do before this? Like what what's your long long history in mobile home parks? Yeah, so um, you know, I, I guess to kind of back into the original part. So I, I started off in commercial real estate. This will be my twenty-eighth year. Uh I've been across the board, whether it be um in retail, development with GSA, now here being in DC, but development with GSA. GSA um, with GSA, GSA uh, Government Services Agency. Okay. Yep. And so they, they're the ones that build the courthouses in Atlanta and stuff like that, right? Um, but um, I, I transitioned and went and built luxury apartment buildings, one down in, in uh, Lone Tree, Colorado. Uh, that was right before I left. Um, so you know, I actually when I when I came across, I was approached by one of the gurus in in the sector. Uh, to be the CFO, and um, I, I actually tapped into the mobile home industry about around 2009, 2010. Um, I came aboard in 2015 as the CFO of this portfolio, uh, not realizing how big this sector is and how underserved it is. Um, again, I said the fifth largest portfolio in the country at the time, um, with the gurus who basically written the Bible around mobile home communities. Um, you have Sam Zell, you have Warren Buffett that were sitting at the top, but they, they kind of are stealth bombers and all of this. They kind of stood behind and, and behind Berkshire, behind Clayton and all that, Clayton who manufactures the homes. But I started to learn about how consistent the cash flows can be. Um, and, and when you apply the right methodology in terms of a very rudimentary style, 
you still are maximizing your cash flow and it's very consistent. It's very reliable. Tenants don't leave for eight to nine years. They're consistent on their payments. Those that aren't, um, yes, they, they probably should be evicted, but every single community owner, mobile home community, mobile home park owner wants to work with their tenants because it costs so much to, to get a new tenant in there or bring in a new uh, mobile home itself on top of the lot. So you're always working with the tenant. You're always maintaining a, a standard and a uh, notion of community. Uh, and you get to know those tenants as well. But like I said at the beginning of the podcast, is the, the most efficient mobile home community operates at a 30% expense to income ratio. And think about apartments, which are 50% or less, or 50% or more, sorry. And think about Commercial buildings like retail, the reason why they charge triple net or office buildings, the reason why they have gross leases, all these things, those expense to income ratios are much, much higher. So your profit margin, when it comes to the bottom line and get to the NOI, which is where valuations are made, right? It's so much higher. Could you consistently look at and expect underwrite at 40% expense to income ratio from mobile home communities? and then create efficiencies, and typically it comes down to 33 to 35%. That means 65% falls to the bottom line, then you take out debt service or any contributions or anything that it comes to other expenses, and you have your NOI. Still very healthy. So, so continue along. You, you worked for this, this largest firm, and then right. what, what made you transition? Um, so when I actually, when we recapitalized with the previous company, um, what does that mean? I had put, what's that? What does that mean? Like someone came like, okay, a big... so we, we cap, we, recapitalization means like typically in a recapitalization effort, a company will come in and give you more capital to grow your fund or boost employment or maybe enhance employment, enhance office space. Um, you know, even give you enough capital, kind of almost like um, an angel fund investor, right? But it's not that way. You have a proven track record. You have capital. And, and, I, and I've watched many of your videos in the past, and podcasts in the past, where you talk to people and you talk to angel investors and or talked about uh, how to grow within purchasing businesses or how to invest. Um, these groups look at past track record. You're audited. You're vetted with, by Ernst & Young, you know, the, one of the big four. And these big private equity firms have a lot of clout. So they're not just going to invest in somebody. What they're doing is they're coming in, they're saying, okay, we're going to give you X amount of dollars to reinvest into your company, to boost your company's uh, infrastructure and employment so that we can make you bigger. And we're going to bring you also advice and consultants and everything X, Y, Z to take you to the next level. And right, that's the two different separations. But recapitalization is taking the value of your portfolio, giving you money based on that value, and then also joining along with you with additional capital to grow. So, so in in the world of uh, let's use easy math. So, like, let's say you have a hundred million dollar fund, um, or it's valued at a hundred million dollars, and um, some big, you know, private equity firm comes in and they say, "Hey, um, you know, we need you." Get Audited by Ernst and Young, or maybe you already have. We want to give you twenty million, um, mm -hmm. and we're going to be, you know, a one sixth owner, or yeah, could be we're, more, we're, could be we're less. Board, we're going to own a board share. Yep, yep. And then um, we're going to 
basically, it's kind of like an injection of capital where you use that just like a startup would to like build software, improve and, and, and help you grow a lot faster. So that's the event that happened in your world. Then what happened? Yeah. And then after that, so, I mean, I had in, in a short, probably call it a 36 month period. I have run, I had run my, my wick, my energy wick in terms of uh, working so, so far thin that the candle, like I literally was done. Um, and, and I had taken the advantage of all the experience and everything that I learned and did some travel. Um, and after my travels and during the travels, I, I kind of sat around and, and, and thought to myself, there's an underserved component of this market. And, and I know from talking to our acquisitions department and, and learning about all these different assets that sat across the country, owned by mom and pops, uh, that we were pursuing, but maybe we're too small. But there are individual investors that were pursuing these assets and willing to make their, their investments in individually into these things, not not buying five of them, just one, just one to experience the cash flow. And that was extremely underserved. And I, and I, I thought to myself after uh, looking at my database and using all my analytics and, and uh, business intelligence models and everything that I put together over time, um, I was like, nobody else has access to this. And all these lenders know me. They talk to me. I can talk to these investors on a small imbalance ratio, like a small balance element, and, and give them guidance. And instead of being a mortgage broker that connected them to the lenders, I became their, call it their, their investment advisor or investment partner. And that's when I started Cloverleaf. And Cloverleaf started in 2019 in between now and, you know, called the, the previous fund and CFO um, experience or, or uh, my role, started Cloverleaf. And in the midst of that, met up with a couple other partners in the firm now, which is Haven Capital Ventures. Um, they they wanted me to join them and, and kind of take my expertise in the previous funds and start a whole new one, right? And and I, I guess my biggest thing and probably the shortest answer to your question is I wanted to put my own thumbprint on on mobile home community investment with funds. Um, you know, syndications, stuff like that. Um, and it, where I have man, bring advanced analytics and advanced intelligence and, and real time dynamic analytics, um, it hasn't been done before. So I have the expert, I have the expertise with previous funds, large funds, but the analytical basis, like to modernize it. Do you, uh, does that mean you're going after smaller portfolios than? Then, kind of maybe at the firm you were previously. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We're 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 investing in and looking at. We still have a criteria, right? Our buy box, our buy box of investments, and I'm sure you've heard that in the past with all like your your past contributors and guests on the forum. And I, I love that term. Uh, it's something that I haven't heard probably in about 12 months, and I, I forgot about it. But I heard it recently in talking to uh, uh, a kind of a residential investor down in Texas, but. You know, a buy box tells me that here is we want to invest in this minimal amount, but it has to hit this per lot cash flow, right? It has the capability to do this, but even more if we add lot. So, so what are those criteria for you, and and, and how are those criteria different than than where you were before, right? So, like, so so the thought that comes to mind is like, hey, you just um, left 
you have an incredible experience, right? Like you've done all these different firms. Uh, and then you're now, you've now started your own firm. And the thing that comes to mind is, oh, is he just doing the same thing? And now he's competing against his bigger firm that has different resources and more resources. Or is he doing, is he targeting a different part of the niche? Because I know, for example, like institutions only buy something that, you know, is at least $5 million or $10 million. Yeah. And you might play yeah. in the, uh, underneath that space. So walk me through like what what was the acquisition criteria before and how has that changed now to what you're doing sure sure so the acquisition criteria before was always to be in a platform where you would buy at a seven cap on the market okay we'll we'll, we'll walk our way down and i use this very often in terms of my conversations with investors and also on the podcast uh we all we're all familiar with fifty thousand foot view twenty five thousand foot view and then down to the ten, right so 50,000 foot view was we want to purchase something that's on the market for a current six cap, seven cap. Okay. So a seven cap means it's producing $7,000 of uh, net income or just top, top net revenue. operating income. Yep. Okay. Net operating, net operating income. income. So net income of the property for every $100,000 you've invested. Okay. Exactly. Keep going. So, so we would purchase them at a seven cap on the market. But applying our strategies, creating efficiencies in the expenses, and then boosting rents in year two, not sitting there looking at a five-year forecast, but in year two, this is we're purchasing this at a our our thirteen cap. Makes sense. So, so, so you're buying, you're taking something that produces seven thousand dollars a year in in net income, and yep. then your goal is to is to improve it enough to the point where it's generating $13,000 per 100K invested. By year two, by two and a half. Year two, year two and a half. Got it. Okay, how do you do that? Like, what's uh, your consistent, it's, it's, like, blueprint approach to going in? Like, you only buy a property that's in XYZ shape or, you know? Yeah, it's, it, it, there's, there's, certain, there's certain factors and in, in standards. And then I think that's where a lot of the, if we want to, we don't want to jump down the, the rabbit hole about you know what what it takes to get there because we'd be here for two days. This would be the longest podcast. Yeah, that's where the gold is, man. I, I want to hear all the learning. Like that, that's what makes this interesting, right? It's like <laughs> why is your criteria the way it is? You you learn yeah. all these nuggets and tidbits by by understanding those stories. Yeah, well, I mean, basically, it comes. It starts with expenses, right? Don't push. Don't. You could look at something that's in the market at, um, you know, say fifty to a hundred dollars below their, their competition, but don't immediately jump into increasing the rents, creating dissension in the community, and then also dissension in the locality where you're trying to push these tenants out that we already have an affordable, the, the most affordable option for these tenants in each individual geography. But the first thing you could do. And, and it comes with experience. And again, I learned from some of the greats. And, I, and I'm, so, I'm so blessed to have learned from them. But I mean, I could see utility expense and tell you per lot basis in a given region and the advanced analytics that I've learned over time using uh, discussions with appraisers, everything. I mean, there's, there's some things that, that are on black and white within an Excel spreadsheet. And then there's some things, as you know, as an investor as well, that you just see, right? But I mean, you could go in and you could see the per lot basis based on other communities in the region that you could cut down utility expenses because there's a leak. And if you if you remedy that leak, 
you're cutting expenses, which is one of the top four in mobile home communities, water usage, sewer, right? You cut that down by 25%. You've already increased your NOI by 25%, creating efficiencies. That community as well, and again, we're just talking about a microcosm, but that community as well, tenants are, the community's paying for these utility expenses and the tenants are the ones consuming it. So you create efficiency by reducing the leaks and you like literally have redone the infrastructure, created efficiencies there, and you say, oh, by the way, tenant, in what residential arena does the tenant not pay for their consumption of water? Think about apartments. Think about homes. I mean, you just sit there for free and use how much ever water you want. So you charge back. You build back ten dollars a month. So, so you're going in and you're going you're you're going into a property. You're looking at the utilities and you're um, uh, one thing you're looking for is is does the owner lease back utilities? If not, that's a great way to increase NOI. But what are other things that you do? You said you go in. Um, and it was very surface level answer. Like, give me some details. Give me the meat. I, I, like, I, I, you go I into a property, in. and yeah. what's your like ten? What are the ten things you look at? Um, I think number one thing, number one thing you look at is what's what's what are the what's the competition doing around you? Okay, say there are five. You want you want typically five mobile home communities around you. Okay, if you're one individual within a rural market, you control the market, and therefore charging rents and doing anything you do is not going to add value. But if you have four others in the market, five total, a minimum five, within, whether it's a rural market or, or a sub-metro market, um, you want the five around you. If, if one of those five or all four of those five are 90% occupied and they're charging $75 more in lot rent, okay, and they have better amenities, hello, I mean, that's number one. Go into this community, pave the streets with the new ways of, of, of how to, 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 to pave that are acceptable from Fannie and Freddie and, and all these conventional banking atmospheres. So you could say, look, everybody else around us, why is that? That they're 90 to 95% occupied, we're at 60%, and we're $75 cheaper. Number one. Number two, look at the expenses. Go in. How can we create efficiencies? Again, give back to the community and the tenants first. What can we do to give back to the tenants? We don't want to lose tenants. It costs more to get rid of tenants and, and, and create evictions than it does to maintain them. So you want to maintain them. You want to create more value. You want to create more community. So go in, pave the roads, provide solar lamps, um, you know, uh, create, uh, even as, as far as creating a playground, a sense of community. I keep pushing that, right? After that, then you start to really engineer into the property. If we want to start boosting rents, what is what keeps us below the other four? Remember, we talked about five in, in the in the in the region. What are the other four offering? We're already seventy-five dollars below them. Let's only bump it up ten bucks. And then when you when you approach your tenants about bumping the rents, plus also passing through utilities, right? Getting back some of the infrastructure improvement that you've done. This is an investment, for God's sakes, at the end of the day, right? But you say, look, everybody else around us is $75 at minimum higher than what we're offering. We're just bumping the rent 10 bucks, and then we're also charging another $10 for the utilities that you've been using for five years. It's not, it's not obscene. And we're going to bring, we're, and, and these vacant lots that are sitting around us, uh, we're going to bring in some brand new homes. You have an opportunity to buy one of those homes, and we'll buy that home from your your current used home from you 
We'll bring in a new one. You can buy that one. We'll give you a whole payment plan, right? And that's, again, jumping down the rabbit hole. But then we've brought a brand new home in. We've, got, we've given this tenant an opportunity to own a brand new home. We're going to buy the, their used home from them and then bring another tenant in and increase occupancy. I dig it. Okay. I'm starting to get a better picture for exactly like what you're doing. I'm I'm trying to picture these things in my mind, right? Like if, if I'm yeah. an, if I'm an investor looking at your deal, I want to know what's the secret sauce, right? Like what's yeah. wh- what do you guys do that go in? What's your blueprint? Um, how did you get into this asset class? Like why mobile home parks for you versus all the other different types of investing? Office. Yeah. Yeah, development. Um, you know, honestly, it, it came, it fell upon me. Um, I, I, my, my past mentor, uh, reached out to me and it's, uh, Dave Reynolds and, and he's one of the gurus in, in the sector itself. Um, and, and I totally appreciate everything that, that he taught me and Frank Rolf and, and, and I mentioned other names that are big in the sector, but, um, yeah, it, it fell upon me. I was out there seeking a position after developing apartment buildings and, um, yeah, it, 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 I, I drove out to Western Colorado, four hours from Denver, which we just had it like prior to the uh, the podcast. We talked about this, but uh, yeah, it was a four hour drive one way. I drove out there and and just like the personality of him and and started to learn about mobile home communities that I only had touched a fractional amount of um, in my in my commercial real estate history, but. It started to make sense, and then I was I was addicted. I was in everything about it. I was like, and then plus, everybody was doing these things old school, like the old school way of underwriting any type of real estate, residential, you know, single family up to commercial. And then with my analytical background, I started to tap into the ways to create machine learning uh, algorithms, all this stuff uh, behind it. And so here I am today. So. Uh, Maybe let's frame this where, look, you're obviously in this asset class and, and totally bought in. Walk us through, like, why do you think this is such a good asset class to invest in? Why, why should I, you know, if we target people who maybe have done less than, than 10 LP investing deals, and they're, you know, sitting there trying to figure out, you know, do I invest in a debt fund? Do I invest in... Um, you know, I'm trying to get my, I'm trying to get consistent cash flow. Yep. Um, obviously, I want to save, you know, protect my wealth that I've built, but, but I'm trying to figure out how to invest it. Like, why uh, s- sell us on like why you love mobile home parks so much, um, and why it might be a good choice for someone that's that's going along this path is one of their first right, days. right, and and I, and I think that's a great that's a great point. Um. This is the only asset class, um, even even behind the, the, what they would consider in today's market, true affordable housing or Section 8, right? This is the only asset class spread across all commercial real estate, which it is. This is multifamily. We've gone through the analogy and, and the, the, the depictive of it. Um, but it's the only one that's been resilient and has stood above the rest of the major food groups within commercial real estate. It's the only one that was resilient through recession, right? In 2007, 2008, it maintained that same number one or number two basis in NOI growth all of the years, and then even accelerated so much past the rest of the food groups, the commercial real estate food groups in COVID. It jumped above everything. And so, I mean, it's for me, 
I love the consistency, the reliability. Um, when you talk about getting cash on cash returns, um, IRRs with, with, in terms of your investment over the term of your investment, um, all you want to know is something that's consistent. It's not a shot in the dark, right? And I, I, I felt over time that each one of the commercial real estate classes and asset classes um, are kind of riding that cycle. What's happening with inflation? What's happening with rental markets? Are there too many units in the market when it comes to multifamily? We're looking today, and, and I hear, I just had a conversation in a podcast earlier today discussing about office buildings, with all the office space that's now vacant, and what are they going to do? That belongs to things like self-storage, which is on the boom now, that belongs to office, that belongs to retail, that belongs to residential apartments. But one thing that has stayed stable through all of it is mobile home communities. It's the most affordable, the most effective affordable, and now you have government initiatives pushing more and more, counties, states pushing more and more to develop initiatives around mobile home communities, even to the level that, and, and I was part of this firm, uh, the, the fund, previous fund that helped develop the policies for Fannie and Freddie. Again, sitting here in D.C., looking at the Capitol building, thinking, okay, I remember that I, I played a role in this. I think one of the things that I think about when I look at mobile home parks is is when you're going into a recessionary environment. You know, this is this is very much a time when you know things are unclear what's going to happen, and yeah. you know, I, I would argue that if everyone thinks a looming recession is happening, the worst thing you could be doing is investing in luxury class A apartment buildings or into Airbnb, you know, short-term rentals or anything like that. Like the, the thinking being, if you're going to invest, um, like people, if we go into a recession, people aren't going to be like going on vacations as much. They're not, yeah. you know, and, and the so, tighter. right. And so on the yeah. other side of the spectrum, I, I think, you know, I've been a huge co-living guy. I love buying single family homes, renting them by the room. Um, and mm -hmm. I kind of think of that as very similar to, to this. It's, I mean, it's a totally different product, but you know, when recessionary times are ahead, I would want to be in an asset class that grows in demand. Um, which, you know, if, if, if people are, you know, being tighter on their topic, uh, on their pocketbooks, then they're not going to want to spend as much uh, money in rent. And so everything actually compresses down to what I think is this bottom part of uh, mobile home parks. So um, w would you say similarly? Oh, yeah, I would, I would definitely say so. And I think I used the analogy earlier when it comes to the times to invest. And you know, one, of the, one of the big things that I pointed out with using the analytics and, and a lot of the, the data that I gained over time, I mean, I, I had spoken to our PR firm out of California, and they looked at one of the the, the, the database and the data resource uh, of, of hyperlinks and, and links to websites and data over time, um, and just watching the trajectory of mobile home communities. I mean, right now is the time to be investing in this because there are so many people flooding equity. All of your big private equity firms, I, the groups that I hear now, it's it's tripled, quadrupled, quintupled since when I first got involved, and that's only since 2015. 
right? Private equity has this, they caught on. Warren Buffett's, a, he's a brilliant guy. He kind of knows what he's doing, right? And so everybody else jumped onto that. Investing into mobile home communities has become mainstream. Uh, erasing the stigma is the other thing too. But I mean, with the solidarity that you can make with mobile home communities, you're talking about recession, you're talking about inflation, you're talking about one of the things that America has always had a shortage of is affordable housing. And I've described and hopefully I've started to convey the image of what, where mobile home communities actually put themselves in today's market for residential. It's not a trailer park. That's the days of the past. The misconception, the, 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 uh, the, mis, the, the, the misunderstood elements that it's not just trailer park like the 70s or 80s. We're, we're developing it into communities and, and big private equity and groups like ourselves and that are raising funds and, and pushing and pushing the image of a community is the way to go. And if it remains resilient through recession, COVID, a global pandemic, everything, and you don't raise the rents, you only just bump them up. And it's still the most affordable option in a shortage of affordable housing. I mean, to answer your question, it's everything I just said in the past five cents. I'm very much bought in on into why now I, I think this asset class maybe more than than ever is a, is interesting. How can a mobile home park operator screw up a deal? You know, like what are the risks when I'm if I'm looking at a at investing in your firm or any firm that does mobile home park communities, like what are the red flags that I should be looking for and and like. What is an out, you know, like interest rates rising as a risk and that, you know, like walk us through all that. Sure. Sure. There's, there's the top three, right? Number one, getting into like saying that, uh, yeah, I've, I've owned apartment buildings and I could totally do this. It's not the same thing. I described lot, home, two different operations, right? Uh, and this, this operation is, is, truly a, a difference maker but let's just focus on this a, mu- a multi-family a sticks and bricks walls right that's that's it's completely different and how you operated the infrastructure you're talking about 1980s to maybe 90s infrastructure that you have to monitor manage keep track of and and, and try to modernize right so the number one thing is people thinking oh I'm buying this at a multifamily with a multifamily perspective, an apartment perspective, and you have no idea what you're getting into. Number one way to screw it up. Number two, going into these things, and like I told you about, always get into uh, a region or a market where there's four others, right? Going in and seeing that the others are charging 325 and you're at 175, and you go into the community and you go. 175, I should be at 325. You make those, you, you charge those tenants that rate. All of a sudden, you have, you have all the tenants pushing to have lawsuits. There are all kinds of attorneys and, and law firms around the country look, just seeking, kind of like ambulance chasing, right? Waiting for somebody to say, uh, we're, we're coalitioning to like, go against our owner who's pushed our rents beyond affordable. And so now they're none of them are paying. So you went from 175, charged them to 325 in the, in the rest of the communities without giving anything back to the tenants. And now nobody's paying. That's number two. 
The number three way to mess this up is get too many too quick. And buy one in California, buy one in Wisconsin, buy one in New York, and buy one in Florida. Not the same, not the same markets. Cap rates fluctuate, and the, the, tr the trend or traction of the market and how it's being marketed in today's atmosphere, which is a lot of them are overpriced, but you're buying all of them because you have that free capital and you don't know how to operate any of them. Makes so, sense. So you've you've just mentioned that that uh, with Haven Capital Partners, you guys invest all across with the U.S. How, how yeah, do you think your strategy is different? Yeah. yeah. How, how do ours different? How, how are we? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. well, I mean, uh, you, you just made the argument like uh, you shouldn't be investing with an operator that's got like you know different properties all investing the investing States. too fast, investing too fast. Okay, so you want you want to do smart. You want to be part of and you want to invest individually or with somebody that has obviously expertise. Uh, I guess probably one of the underlying statements with what your your example you just provided is somebody that maybe. Is just getting in. Who's gonna Who's gonna buy five communities in the markets? I just told you about. Uh, right, let me let me frame it this way. You you've raised two point two million on your and you're in your second fund with yeah. Haven Capital Ventures, uh -huh. and you said that you're buying homes all across the U.S. Um, buying communities, or, buying communities, and you just said one of the three risks is is working with an operator that uh, has properties all across the U.S. So I'm asking like. You just said that's a risk. So, like, what, what it's, it's a, why yeah. is that your so, strategy? Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the things, like I said, one of the underlying things that that I did not point out or kind of overlay in that statement is somebody that understands the the value of mobile home communities and buys at any price point, okay, uh, versus having experience and being able to assess and analyze the market and then also understand that in queue behind the other two that you have bought. So say the one I told you, I use the analogy of California. It's very hard to buy in California. So buying at a 3% cap rate, how are you going to return to your investors unless it makes sense? Buying in Wisconsin is a whole different platform. Why would you buy in California then Wisconsin? Two different markets. You have to know the Wisconsin market as well. Why would you buy at that additional property in upstate New York? Again, now you're starting to see somebody that's inexperienced and doesn't know. Yeah. What's uh, so, so I think I think we're missing a point here. Like, like, so here here's the way I think about it, right? It's like, okay, you can either invest in a firm that's like, hey, we invest in the southeast region, um, or hey, we invest in, um, uh, you know, we only invest in Florida or Jacksonville or whatever, you know. And in theory, like, you would assume that that operator knows that market really well. You are on your second fund mm -hmm. with 2.2 million under 17th in total. 17th in total, but this is a new firm. You, you've started a new yeah. firm, right? Um, yeah. And and so you know, I, I, someone that's listening and that might want to like that's trying to understand how you think that that like wants to understand about your firm a little bit more about your strategy. Um, like, why are you buying all around the U.S.? Okay, prime example. So when you look at a, a certain market, okay and you find an acquisition opportunity, you're not just going to put pin drops all over the U.S. just because you're getting them at a good rate, right? You can stumble upon a mom-and-pop and off-market deal, but what you're also doing using analytics, right, using a strategic and intelligent approach, you want to buy, remember we talked about having five competitors in the market. You don't want to be the only one. You want four others. 
Well, you're also talking to the owner of this one and the owner of this one so that you have three. End up buying three within the five. And then now you control your expenses. Instead of having a 5% management expense across this one, you can spread it across the three because you have so one community you, manager. So what you do is you go and you identify a mom and pop operator and then and then you go try and buy the additional communities around it? Yep, yep. And so you can control an expense bump. It, do you is that a requirement as part of your acquisition process, or do you one thousand percent, one thousand percent? I want I when I put an offer an LOI down on one property, uh, I'm already looking at the other two. Interesting. Okay, see, this is when I'm asking you about what your acquisition criteria is and like what makes Hagen <laughs> Capital Ventures different. Like you should be saying that. Like, yeah. here's something that we do that I don't think anyone else does. We go and we find mom and pop operators across the United States. And then we go and we buy the existing portfolios around um, that. Like, that's a that's a totally unique it strategy. Is, is. That you're, the you're leaving it out. What are you doing? I, well, I leave it out because I forget the fact that, and, and I do this all the time, Pascal. I do it all the time where I sit there and I'll talk about a specific thing. And I just... I, I feel like everybody else that I'm talking to knows exactly what's happening over here. Yeah, when I'm, I'm talking about what's going on right here. Yeah, no, I get that. Um, well, cool, man. I, I appreciated this conversation. I think uh, I, I love what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. And um, I hope uh, I hope all continues well. Where can where can people go find out and learn more about uh, Haven Capital Ventures? Sure. So at, at any time, obviously, give me a call on my mobile phone. And, and I, don't, I don't reject calls. I don't filter calls. Give me a call on my mobile phone, 303-525-4850. Our office number is on our website, havencapitalventures.com. Um, and then you can reach me via email at bradley.rymer, L-E-Y, bradley.rymer at havencapitalventures.com. Sweet. And we'll, we'll include all of that in the, uh, the show notes. Um, uh, other than that, um, thank you for for coming on the show, Brad. No, thank you very much, and thanks for the opportunity. I'm glad we I'm glad I reached out. I'm glad we we connected again, and I hope all is well with you. And look forward to the next opportunity. Thanks, man. Yep. Yeah, thanks, Pascal. <laughs>